New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Today we'll be exploring the dynamic nature of personality and how each of us consists of distinct, autonomous, and inherently valuable selves. We humans might be described as an unruly republic of more or less independent entities, a multiplicity of selves. Joining us in this conversation are Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber, who encourage us to get to know and honor each of these selves as a key to improve ways of living, loving, and working. Dr. James Fadiman is former president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and professor of psychology and one of the foremost researchers in microdosing studies. He's the author of many books, including The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, and is co-founder of the Sophia University, rooted in transforming the transpersonal. He's been researching healthy multiplicity for more than 20 years. Jordan Gruber was awarded a JD Juris Doctor degree and has forged and sculpted authoritative volumes in forensic law, financial services, and self-development. He founded the Enlightenment.com website and is co-author of The Bounce, an authoritative book on rebound exercise. Together, they are co-authors of Your Symphony of Selves, Discover and Understand More of Who We Are. Join us for the next hour as we explore the dynamic nature of personality and the concept of healthy multiple selves with our guests, Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber. I'm speaking with Jim and Jordan at their homes by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jim, Jordan, welcome. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Great. It's great to have you. First of all, the predominant idea in psychology and consciousness studies, which is called the single self-assumption. So what is that, and how do you explain that for us? Jordan? Well, the idea is pretty simple that if you look around, you see that most people don't act as a single self. They're contradicted. They do things that surprise them. And going back a while, this is pretty obvious to Jim, and while a lot of people had already written about this, by framing it as an assumption, 
that you are or ought to be a single self, it then becomes easy to look at that assumption and just to see that it's incorrect and that all sorts of things that are marvelous start to happen. So what we're, what we're looking at is that we like the idea that there's just one of us and that we're consistent. The only problem is there's no evidence that that's true. And it was from that place that this uh, study and this book arose from dealing with why can't people see what to us seems obvious that a single self might be a wonderful way to describe the universe, except it's not true. <laughs> and the, the major word there is uh, a consistent self, like always repeatable. It's always where we depend on people to be consistent, but that's not a reality, is it? Uh, no. <laughs> sure, sure, sure to answer. <laughs> yeah, no. no. <laughs> and, and the nice thing is you start by looking at yourself and you know you're inconsistent. And if you don't notice it, your beloved, your spouse, your, your partner, they're inconsistent. So at least you have an N of one to start with, no matter who you are. And, and that's why we start the book out with a set of questions. Have you ever done something that surprised you? Have you ever done something that because you were drunk or inebriated and the next day you can't remember why you did it and who has the hangover? It's, it's a very interesting. <laughs> uh, the simplest is, have you ever argued with yourself? And if so, did you notice that there was someone else inside of you arguing? So there's a kind of obviousness to the fact that there's more than one of you. You know, one of the prevalent ideas in culture and psychology is the idea of the inner critic. We're all kind of used to that, art, to, to kind of tap into our inner critic. And would that be like one of our sub-selves or, or multiple self? Well, it would be fair to say that you have different selves and some of them are critical. There are a lot of systems that have tried to say who all the different players inside all of us is, and one of the common ones is a critic, but those are just different ways of trying to slice and dice this. So that reminds me of the idea of a dream work where people put out workbooks and put out books and say, okay, this dream means this. If this symbol shows up, it means this or this. But what you're saying is it very, very individualized. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, when you really work with someone who understands dreams, the question they say, you say, you know, I dreamt I was in a field and I had a sword and I was plowing the field with my sword. Okay. In the dream books, we're talking about a phallus and so forth. What a, what a real dream therapist says is, what does that mean to you? And you say, well, you know, uh, when I was a child and we were farming, um, we used to call the plow a sword. And, and the plow was the thing that kept us alive. So it has nothing to do with the, quote, symbol in the dream book. So that individual selves are as individual as any other, you know, aspect of us, as individual as our fingerprints. So where do these selves come from? <laughs> All right. Okay. I know that's a big subject, but but I got to ask it. Where, how did they arise in us? 
So in the book, we spend a whole chapter on this. We look about where they originate from, what the timeline is, and at the end, we put together a big chart. It has everything from bacteria and individual organs to the interactions you had with people growing up to circumstances that happened to the possibility of, of future selves and past selves and angels. So we don't have any conclusions. We're not sure where they come from. And we end up concluding it doesn't really matter. And yet we present a very extensive review of all the possible places they might come from. And somebody who was reviewing us or talking with us said, it's a little bit like the question is, where does consciousness come from? <laughs> and nobody wants to tackle that one. So it, the correct answer is selves come from the same place that we don't understand as consciousness does. But, but Justine, one very important point that, that we realize is that the traditional psycho, the progressive therapists, as we call them, all talk about how when people split off under terrible pressure and abuse and formed another cell, that was a positive evolutionary adaptive idea. But the idea that cells are formed in positive life events, when you first learn to ride a bike, or when you're, you know, falling in love with someone, you have positive selves that arise throughout your life as well. And there's almost no emphasis anywhere in the literature on that. So, if, all right, the next question that's like the big question is, how do we go about experiencing these separate selves, this multiplicity of selves? How, how do we distinguish them as different selves? <laughs> well, um, I mean, I, I'm laughing because what it is, is once you start to look, you will see it. Now, you may remember before you were interested in the, in, in the other sex or in any sex, a lot of people did a lot of weird stuff that made no sense. A lot of people thought things were exciting that you thought were awful. The idea that somebody would put their tongue in your mouth was just disgusting because that's the way you saw the world. But once you got into puberty and your hormones helped you develop and also widened your sphere of attention, suddenly you could understand a great deal about the world that had been confusing. And when you start reframing what you're seeing as if there were selves, suddenly a whole lot of the world falls into place. So it's not a how can we learn to do it, it's how can we stop not doing it because it's the natural is to see what's actually there. Right, you're already experiencing and going through your different selves. When you're on the show right now with us, you're like at that pristine, justine level of total focus. If you know you go and hang out with your friends later and maybe drink a little, you're not going to really be in the same uh, justine self. And what our book does, uh, our friend Eric Davis called it a seductive invitation. From the title to the simple first chapter to the more in-depth chapters on psychology and neuroscience and everything, all the way to the detailed appendix, we have lots of different levels of saying to you, just check for yourself if the single self-assumption is true. We think you'll find out very quickly that it isn't. One of the suggestions you give in the book that I loved is trying to really feel the difference between these selves is to notice who you are when you first wake up and then notice when that shifts. 
I thought that was very instructive. Do you remember using that example? <laughs> I don't remember that example exactly, but, uh, you know, we had another example recently of uh, uh, the receptionist in our publishing firm was talking to us about how she's really a different person when she goes, changes clothes, and picks up her daughter. Well, suppose she won the lottery early that day and was in a really great mood. Well, she wouldn't have to change her clothes. She'd still be her daughter's person when she goes there. So moods and selves are sort of a different thing. And when you wake up, sure, you don't never know which self you're going to be in exactly. But soon enough, you'll figure out. And as your day moves on, you're likely to move in and out of one or more of them. See, people who, without necessarily understanding it, it's very common for people to say, you know, I go to work, but then I stop on the way home and I have a drink. And then when I get home, I'm not carrying the office anymore. What they're really saying is they switch into from work person self to relationship parent self, and they know the difference. And they also have found, in this case, a method that may or may not be terrific, but it's a method that lets them know they're switching. And, and in the, the example of the receptionist, what was fascinating is you don't really need to change your clothes to pick up your daughter. She'll know who you are. But the changing of your clothes is part of the way you remind yourself that you're moving from busy person at the publishing house to person almost totally focused on having a daughter. I want to remind our listeners I'm here with Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber, and they are the co-authors of Your Symphonies of Selves, Discover and Understand More of Who We Are. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber, and they are the co-authors of Your Symphony of Selves, Discover and Understand More of Who We Are. One of the catchphrases that you both uh, have written about is that we are looking to go for the right mind at the right moment. So that's like kind of a catchphrase. So, so can you flesh that out for me? Sure. It's uh, the phrase that, that, that we do, and it's just a little more rhythmic. It's not any more accurate, is being in the right mind at the right time. 
mental health is being in the right mind at the right time. Yeah. So that why is that mental health? Which is what's the most appropriate way to behave in a given situation? And what you know is if you're at an international sales meeting and your job's on the line, and later you're going to meet a woman that you've been courting and that you have a rare chance to spend an evening with her, you need to make sure that you are in the meeting self when you're in the meeting and you're not in the meeting self, you're in the lover self when you're with your beloved. And that in a so much exaggerated way is what we're talking about. I, I recall when, when one of my children was very small and she came into the little part of our house that was, quote, an office, a little corner, and whatever our, our, dis, our interaction was, it didn't please her at all. And I heard her go back out and say to Dorothy, is daddy tired? Meaning that isn't the daddy that she has grown up with. This was some guy sitting literally at a typewriter and who couldn't be bothered to have children. So that was, that was, I was not able to switch into the right, into the, the healthier self. Neither of those selves were unhealthy, but the question of appropriateness is very important. So, so we like to say that you want to learn how to shift consciously and proactively into a better self rather than being switched or triggered. And an example is that if you're about to have the same argument you always have with your friend or partner and you feel yourself being in that, getting ready to be that person, it's not going to work. If you can shift into a kinder self or one that doesn't need to figure this out now, your life will be a lot better. And you can feel yourself rising into the self that wants to grapple confrontationally. But if you know that that's a real part of you, but you don't have to give it sway right now, your life will be a lot better. So that brings up the question for me, because we, we kind of hear uh, how we can kind of stop an action that's not going to be effective. We, we've learned that in psychology and all the self-help books and everything that's gone on. We've really done a lot of work on that. But you are couching it in the configuration of an actual self or a right. part of our subpersonality. So why is it advantageous to, to look at it as a self rather than just, okay, I'm going to not do that. I'm going to stop myself from doing that. You, do you understand my question there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the question when you're, when you've, there's a wonderful term, I've lost my temper. Now, what that really means is I found it, okay? So I'm now in my angry self. Now, what I've learned is my angry self has really lousy judgment, but it has a feeling of power and righteousness. It's smart. Um, it's, it's, it's mean. But when I feel that anger, I then have to look at, is this the best way to come at this problem? Almost always, and certainly as I've grown older, the answer has been, it's not a good way. When I was younger, I, it was a trade-off. But what I've found is it's, not, it's, it's a shift of a whole being. And actually, it's a shift physiologically. You literally, when you change selves, your, your physical system 
takes on a different configuration. And we know that when you come off of anger, so to speak, that you feel a need to recover. You need to re, you know, recalibrate you know, blood serum levels of things that we don't know quite how to measure. So that the, the distinction is, is it's easier to understand that rather than try and fight with the self that isn't willing to change is to switch to one that is more appropriate. Let me add that another way of looking at this is that when you take seriously the fact that you have different selves, some of which have different agendas than you have, then you'll know that you really can lose control. So in admitting that you can lose control and do things that are really bad, you can take a step back and then say, now what am I going to do about this the next time this starts happening? By knowing that you actually aren't always in control, you gain more control and ability over your whole life. I I just watched a video this morning, and it was someone who had made a decision to stop being an alcoholic. And he indicated his life was a mess. His wife was about to file for divorce. He would lose his children. His job was in jeopardy. And he said, okay, I'm going to change. We then see a video of six beers, and they're on the counter. And he opens all six, and he dumps them down the drain. And he says, I'm now starting a different future. Now, he's been sober for eight months. His marriage is terrific. He actually quit his job and has set up a business. Now, what happened? What happened is his alcoholic self was pushed aside. It's still there. He doesn't use it because it's never, so far, been the right self at the right time. And his other self, which was also there, is now predominant. And that's a shift that is fundamental to to understanding selves. He's not blaming his prior self. He's simply no longer using it as his, as his dominant. Okay, going back... Let's say, and I want to talk about addiction too, but but before I do that, going back to the angry self, I want to go back to that self. It's not a matter of annihilating that self, because when you describe that, you described it as that's a very powerful part of ourselves. So there are some positive aspects to that particular self that we may want to call upon Am I seeing that correct? So so we make the distinction between having a bad dog and being a bad dog. You might have a bad dog, but you'll need to learn to work with it and comfort it and give it different jobs and make it okay. And when we do talk about addiction, we talk about the fact that castigating a, a self that's doing something you don't want generally doesn't work and annihilating a self never works. And even the, the drunken self of, uh, Jim's friend, no doubt he found a way to work with it, or else that self would find a way to pop its way up and cause great problems. Okay, now going back to addiction, thank you for that. Uh, going back to addiction, many you, you mentioned in the book many uh, people who go to psychotherapy and they want to get rid of their addiction. Uh, <laughs> you talk about that addicted self isn't the one yeah, that shows me, let, up let, let for me, the yeah, session. Let me take that. Yeah. Let me take that, which is, okay. 
let's 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 use an alcoholic because enough of us have had been drunk, so we know what we're talking about. And your your drunk self is you know thinks it's clever, thinks it's charming, and so forth. And in the morning, somebody with your name wakes up, and they don't feel charming or sexy at all. They just feel hungover and sick. And they also, if they remember what your drunk self did, they're they're ashamed. So they say, I'm going to therapy. And they go to therapy, and the therapy says, what are you here for? And says, well, I'm an alcoholic. And the therapist says, well, let's talk about it. But the person who goes to therapy isn't the person who drinks. And it is not at all unusual for someone to come out of their psychotherapy session and go buy a drink or buy a bottle because the wrong self has shown up. Now, if you've ever been to an AA meeting, which is really a wonderful event, they've worked out a system where they make it very, very, very safe for the alcoholic self to come to the meeting. So you go to a meeting, you don't say, I'm Jim Fadiman, and I have a lot of interesting things I do, and I also drink. You say, I'm Jim Fadiman, I'm an alcoholic. And you start telling your alcoholic story, but not from an observer position, but from the, you get the alcoholic self to talk about it. And that's effective because that's working directly with why do you drink? I drink for love. I drink for, for you know, to forget my childhood. I, for, I drink to show that I have, um, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm attractive when I don't think I am, whatever the reasons are. But you see the difference is the, 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 the one in the morning with a hangover can, can't stop drinking because it doesn't drink. And, and when you're in the room with all the other people who have said, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic, you feel safe and you have permission to really be present just the way you are without trying to change anything for everybody. And those alcoholic cells are very effective at supporting each other. Exactly, exactly. I, I want to ask, uh, you talk about, like, this is more than just something in your mind. This is actually a physiological thing. It's also in the body. I mean, I, I know that you talk about how um, we we go into uh, physiological aspects and neurological, you mentioned that a little bit, the chemical, hormonal patterns, even our handwriting can change and other things. So it, it's more than just just a mind trick, so to speak. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, we talk about the fact there's a guy named Timmy, and this is a Daniel Goldman reporting it, and he is a mentally ill patient, but in one of his cells, he's not allergic to orange juice. It's 11-year-old cell. And all the other cells, he has hives. And then there's a lot of cases of eyeglass uh, prescriptions change. Oh, we don't focus too much on this because it reminds people of some of the weird movies that have come out lately. And it's not where the focus is, but we include a pretty interesting list, including people having brain scans while they're in different cells and they can't just fake it. Yes, great. Oh, that's amazing, too. It's amazing to to see that, which reminds me then, what's the difference between schizophrenia and multiple selves? So there's kind of, you make a distinction between well, that. We really make a, a bigger distinction, which is this is not a book about people who have mental illness. 
This is a book about everyone else, including the people with mental illness, because they all, for example, have a circulatory system. We don't say, well, schizophrenics have a different circulatory system. They don't. Everyone has a selves system because that's the way we're designed. There's no getting around it. If that self system is in very low cohesion, not in harmony, self-attack, that's a, that's a kind of mental illness. And we talk about self-attack, and people immediately know what you're talking about. Well, let's, t- let's go more into that in just one moment. I need to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber, and we're talking. They are co-authors of Your Symphony of Selves, Discover and Understand More of Who We Are. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber, and we're talking about the multiplicity of selves. And we were just discussing the difference between schizophrenia and other, and this multiplicity of cells and mental health. So you were saying uh, you had something to add to that, please. Well, I wanted to make the distinction that having more than one self Having multiple cells is not inherently pathological. There's nothing. That's the way we are. Now, when you have one or more cells that have a mental illness, that those need to be treated. And when you have a pervasive condition like schizophrenia, which we use Ken Wilber to distinguish from what people think it really is, that's a different thing. So people want to talk to us about bipolar, about schizophrenia, about all these things, and we try to go... Well, it might be relevant in a case, but the general condition of having many cells, I'm, I'm a healthy, happy person because I have many cells and know how to integrate them and keep them cohesive and congruent and coherent and compassionate. You know, if we have a multiplicity of selves, it seems a lot to keep track of. You know, know, I mean, like, how do we make even one decision if we're kind of, let me ask it this way, is there a captain of our ship here? Is there a single conductor? (laughs) Well, there's lots and lots of people who wish there were. And there's a lot of systems out there of psychotherapy, like psychosynthesis, uh, integrated family systems, that... Uh, say in the long run, you're you're aiming for this single, higher, terrific self. Um, we don't really take a position on that because there's again not a lot of evidence. And um, I've suggested if there is a higher self, the question you need to ask it is what is its favorite restaurant? Because as <laughs> soon as you do that, you realize that the quote higher special self doesn't seem to have the same attributes as all of yourselves. So it's, it may be a little bit like, does Santa Claus exist? Because if he does, you get toys. But if he doesn't exist, you still get toys. 
so that maybe the the need for Santa Claus is is a little overblown. Oh, good example. Another example that you used that I really liked, uh, you give the example of SEAL training, the Navy SEALs, and how they work as a way of being. So can you describe that and how that works uh, effectively? Yeah. The, the, what they found out is that the hardest part of teaching SEALs to work with each other is letting them trade off who's in the lead at the last second. So uh, the term they use, which I'm blanking on uh, right now, but I'll find it in a second, uh, basically means that you have to know how to give command and control over to the guy who's in the next room with the gun in the back and doing that stuff. And they, that is what they teach people to do. And, and they say, and, and it trades in a split second even, like if somebody's looking left, another person needs to look right. And then something else happens and someone else says starts to to take the lead and they just immediately follow it one one just split second and, okay, the, the, the name they use is dynamic subordination uh, <laughs> and, and it really kind of says what it is and so yeah basically within your own system of cells you know you have to learn how to do that sort of thing we provide many metaphors and many ways. I mean, basically everything that's been written in English, we try to bring together in one place and say, here's how it works for this person. Here's how it works for this person. Here's what the Navy SEALs do. Here's what these people do. But each person has to, again, find their own way. Now, we should make it clear that this is not a theory. This is a bunch of evidence. I mean, literally, we have maybe a thousand examples in the book from every part of human behavior. And, and we've had this problem, which is, well, if it's everywhere, the way you guys say, why haven't we all noticed? And we have things like, do you remember when everyone thought the world was flat? Do you remember when uh, scientists had to deal with the impossibility of that the Earth was the center and the sun revolved around it with the planets? Um, those were believed by a lot of very nice people. But as soon as they began to see that there was an, a, a, a more correct way to see the world, there was this incredible feeling of relaxation. And what we're getting from readers, see, this isn't a self-help book. I've written one. And it isn't, because self-help books, no matter how wonderful they are, and mine was wonderful, um, <laughs> you end up with a whole lot of things you're supposed to do. What happens when we're, when our readers have gotten back to us, they say, I'm reading this book and I see the world differently as I'm reading. And it's a better, easier, more congruent world. And then, then some nice thank yous happen. Right. People have permission to be all of the different parts of who they are. And that's such a huge relief because the single self-assumption backed up by what's called essentialism in Western philosophy, as well as monotheism, you know, one God, one soul, one self, all of that sells, it can't be this way. But yet, it was held to be this way by William James, the father of American psychology, in the 1880s and 1890s, when he wrote about social selves. But then the idea of multiplicity was buried, mainly by Freud, by around 1910. And then you never heard about it again until the three faces of Eve and Sybil, and that sort of very pathological context. So the idea that this is the healthy way that everybody could be just never occurs to people. 
So this just reminds me of the Buddhist uh, thought that they say, uh, try it for yourself and see if it works. You know, right. they're not they're not saying, okay, this is the way it should be, and this is the be-all and end-all. They just say, try it. See if it works for you. And that's kind of what you're saying in the book. Like, okay, you might view it this way, and does that resonate? And, and Exactly. Does- and, you know, it's, it's when you're a child or when you have children, I remember it more the other way, and you say, here is a new food. And your child says, I don't like it. And you say, you can't not like it until you've tasted it. And, and they say, no, no, I can dislike it without tasting it because that's being a child. Okay? So what we're, when we say to people, if this feels like your inner life, you're going to enjoy this book. If this doesn't feel like this inner life, this book is important for you to read. Exactly. Exactly. You mentioned briefly uh, the idea of metaphors. And so you put out some metaphors to help us kind of see how this has worked in different situations uh, in nature. So can you talk about the, the metaphors that might help us to see more clearly what you're talking about? Well, there's there's a lot of them. It's everything from flocks of birds to actual orchestral symphonies, which is uh, in the title to, to, to families to, um, you know, there's lots and lots of different ways of describing how people and, and groups work together. So in, in other words, like, uh, let's say... Um, I know one in particular that you talk about, like jazz combos, right? And they shift around all the time, and and that was particularly meaningful to some of us when we could think of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's to allow certain aspects of ourselves to take over where it's appropriate, and to give ourselves that permission rather than having one conductor saying, okay, now you go, and now you go. It's more intuitive, isn't it? Well, the, the jazz, you know, think of a jazz combo, and what two things happen, which is the solo moves around, and what happens when someone is soloing, the other people don't just stop. They all shift into a mode of support. So they lower their tone, but they're following the soloist and adding to it. And then it shifts again. And as you describe it, the jazz, um, the jazz combo, we even use that term, we don't use it too many other places, is a group where, like with the Navy SEALs, leadership changes and everyone cooperates. What we're saying is that's an internal goal for yourself, is to shift when it's the right time to shift and the rest of the selves are perfectly aware of what's going on, and are helpful as necessary. I'm also thinking of a a wonderful quote that you have in the book from Dan Millman, and he has suggested that you ask yourself, what would be, in, in this case, in this quote, he said, what would be the strongest, bravest, most loving part of my person, of my personality? What would they do now? And then do that. 
Uh, do it with all your heart and do it now. Uh, I love that quote. So if if we're wondering how to proceed on something, is that like a good question? We can say, what is my best self for, let's say, um, <laughs> for example, for me, procrastination is one of <laughs> mine, okay? I'm easily distracted by shiny objects and and how to, to do the work of all the emails I get and I answer all these other questions, but not my own work. And I so I get distracted. So so I I need to ask myself, okay, maybe that question would be a good question. Wait, I need to write this essay right now. So I have to be kind of more tunnel vision. I have to force myself, well, not force myself, but call up the self that is my inner writer, let's say. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. No, that's exactly it. And that you call up your inner writer, and then usually your inner writer says, I really like to write this essay. And then you're not distracted for a while. Then another part of you says, you know, I really enjoy your writing, but, the, but part of me really is hungry. And we need to shift because I need to cook before I can eat. And the writer says, I don't know how to cook. And the, the cooking part of you says, you don't have to. And you work it out. What we're saying is if you make that a little more a little more visible as I've just done, you'll see that's exactly what has happened for you. Well, one of the ones that I have been calling up recently is um I find myself uh, misplacing my glasses or my book or my oh, yeah. cell phone, and I'm constantly looking for it. And so I'm saying, please, when I set something down, please, will that part of me that knows I've set something down, keep track of that and let me know when I need it again, where it is. And is, is, I, is it working? Is that working for you? Um, a little bit. I, I, yeah. I, 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 a little bit. It really is. I mean, I, I can't say it works every time, but a sure. little bit it is. So um, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber, and they are the co-authors of Your Symphony of Selves. If you want to know about their work, go to jamesfadiman.com or jordangruber.com or newdimensions.org, and you'll find out more information about both this book and, and many other things that they're doing. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber, and we're talking about your symphony of selves. And I just gave an example of putting down my my glasses and and trying to call up another part of myself. And what what could you say about how effective that might be? It's incredibly effective because you're you're you are talking to yourself, and we all talk to ourselves which is another way we know we have selves. And you're saying, I'm paying attention right now to putting my glasses down. So when I need my glasses, I simply have to ask the part of me that paid attention, where are they? Um, Dorothy says to me, when I make a list, another part of me then looks at the list and says, oh, I need to do all those things. And that works for her much better than not having a list. So the part of her that does things really doesn't quite know what what needs to be done. And again, that's very normal behavior because we're talking about normal behavior. We're talking about the way people actually are. Normal people having normal behaviors. And by making ourselves more aware that in itself changes the level of integration or cohesion or harmony between the parts of ourselves. And that's what people seem to say makes a huge difference in their lives and has made a huge difference in Jordan's and my life as we worked on this book. When, when we really... If, if you go back to the metaphor, like we used to believe as humankind that the sun was revolving around the earth, and then now we know that that's not the case. So as we s start to incorporate the idea that, that we are multiplicity of selves, how will this be changing our legal systems, psychiatry, psychology, even mental health systems? Will could it have an effect on all of those uh, institutions? Well, we take some time in the book to outline sort of a program of research and action that will need to be done as this comes to be realized. Because what we're talking about is reconceiving psychology from the ground up based on cohesion. How coherent are you? How easy are you to understand? How congruent are you? Do you do what you say? And how compassionate are you? Because when you realize that you and other people in your life have selves, it's a lot easier to be compassionate. So if somebody tells you, you know, I forgot what you told me, you can be mad at them or you can realize they're really just not in the same self they were in when you told them that. And so what the book does is all sorts of simple questions and dynamics, like forgetting things or sleeping with someone in the night, the next morning, you're like aghast at what you've done. And there's all sorts of simple, obvious things that this illuminates and makes clear. And that's that's why we're so excited about it. This also reminds me that um, when we're working with others, like we, we expand our understanding of them as not a single isolated, you know, consistent self. And so we might give them a little more leeway in their their lives and our interactions. Is is that something safe to say? 
Well, what we're really saying is when you accept that other people are inconsistent as you are, you are more forgiving and you're more accepting. And that leads to being more compassionate because just as you say, I've learned to forgive myself. And the reason you do that is because most of you didn't do it. And you forgive your children for endless things they do because they didn't know any better and they're just learning. And most of the time, they aren't that way. And you do that with other people. You, What we find is that... Um, I should mention that my children have said to me for decades, Dad, you have to do this book. It makes life easier. And we're adding to that, when life is understandable, it works better. Doesn't mean your life is terrific if you read this book. Not at all. It says you'll understand how the world works, and it's easier when you do that. Well, it gives you options, doesn't it, that you maybe didn't have before because you're not so rigid about who you are. And and it doesn't drive you crazy when you can't make a decision. Uh, My daughter had to decide between two wonderful colleges, and she said, oh, my God, you're right, Dad. There's part of me that really wants to go to Manhattan, but there's another part of me that realizes I'll be a lot better off, you know, where I'm going to go. And when she, you know, knowing that you have parts that conflict, then you can make it okay that you're not exactly sure because you realize different parts of you are working it out. And so how did she finally decide then on the one college over the other? What, what, what gave her uh, help, helped her to do that? Well, I think partly just knowing that she, that she didn't have to make a decision one way or the other. And uh, a big part of it was just not trying to force her to do the right thing. And she did the right thing. So uh, she figured it out. Okay, the the operative word there was that she didn't force it. Right. Right. We could have said, you can't go to Bar- Barnard in Manhattan because it's a big city and you won't really go to school and all that. But if we had tried to force her, the part of her that was dug in would have wanted to do it anyway. Instead, we left the field open and trusted she would realize being a, you know, a nice musical institution in the Midwest was a much better deal for her. Okay. Okay. I'd like to go into something that you kind of cover briefly in at the end of your book, and it's um, about the future stuff, like uh, something like AR, augmented reality, and VR, virtual reality. And I was kind of fascinated by this, and I was fascinated in this way, that can these kinds of technologies help support the uh, our best and most effective selves that we get to practice kind of being the warrior or being the writer or being whatever it is that we're kind of conjuring up in these virtual realities. Or conversely, we call up that, that, that we've talked about the angry self. We, we, we call up that negative selves. And it can be an outlet for that that allows us to be that bad bad dog self uh, to, to harmlessly express itself. Uh, so I was just thinking, yeah, it, could this be helpful to us in this way? 
technology is always a double-edged sword, right? People are going to be able to use this in uh, different ways. Um, we think that, you know, one of the reasons gaming is so effective is that people really like to be in the gaming cells. And, and you know, McGonagall has written a book about it, and it's, it's you know, that works. So I think, yeah, getting to experience different parts of who you are, especially during pandemic lockdown, is a really healthy outlet. And if you, if you look at the way children play, they change selves. And then they argue. They say, no, I want to be the doctor. I want to be the father. I want to be the monster. But they don't stick with it. They, they use it until it's time to change to another self. And the possibility of being an avatar and then not being, going back to your other life, the question is always, what do I bring back to integrate to you know to advance my whole being and again technology undoubtedly will make that much it'll make it much easier if people understand what they're doing and the chances of it being also deeply misused I'm I'll, I'll I go 100% on that so, so we talk about Facebook a little bit and how one of the problems with it is that it's forcing everybody to just be one of who they are I think we've all had this problem you know early on in Facebook you're only friends with a few people and now you're going to let in you know your conservative relatives well now you have to kind of be tighter in how you present yourself and not show all the different parts of yourself so we have to be you know and it seems that the part that Facebook pulls all of us into is the part where we're at arguing politically with other people. And that's the self we become whenever we're on it. So I think we have to be very aware of those dynamics. So that's the operative. Awareness heals is what you say in the book. Awareness heals. So to be aware of of who's expressing at one time and to judge whether that's effective or we need to gently put that aside and call up another part of ourselves? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Awareness <laughs> Heals, which is by Tim Galway, by the way. And awareness and maybe her sister attention allow you to see how things actually are, not as you presuppose them to be. And this book is about some of the shifts that happen as you become aware of the reality of your own selves and of the selves of others. So, yeah. And again, this is about awakening consciousness and about having all of our channels open so we can use them, all of our senses and all of our internal channels and all of it. Yep. Here uh, we are again. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. It's only through a change in consciousness that the world will be transformed. So I've, I've heard that before. <laughs> I know. Here we are again. Well, I want to thank you both so much for being part of New Dimensions today. Thank you so much. We've just kind of skated very lightly into this, and there's much more to, to delve into when one picks up the book. Thank you so much, Jim and Jordan. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having us. It's been wonderful to visit with you again. Thank you so much. It's same for me. It's I've been speaking with Dr. James Fadiman and Jordan Gruber, and they are the co-authors of The Symphony of Selves, Discovering and Understanding More of Who We Are. And if you want to know more about their work, you can go to their websites, respectively, jamesfadiman.com, or jordangruber.com, and 
there they have also a whole section in both of those websites about the book if you want to delve more into that or into their work in general. Or you can get to both of these websites through newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3711. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.